0: Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project. I started this project during Black History Month of 2022 because I wanted to provide a platform for Black Americans to share their stories about living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also wanted to provide a space for people to memorialize someone who is a Black American who sadly lost their life during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was inspired by the work of Zora Neale Hurston, author and anthropologist, to record the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. My goal is to get my recordings into museums, such as the Smithsonian Museum, of African-American history and culture, or the Schaumburg, or the Library of Congress's Folklife Museum. I'll share a little bit about me and my family history, and then I'll speak to my guests. I'm a Black American. My dad was African-American and Indigenous American. His ancestors were enslaved in Georgia. In fact, we still have our family slave name, which is Killebrew. My dad, Dr. Terrence Kilrew, met my mom in graduate school at the New School in New York when they were both earning their master's degrees in psychology. And I'm a fourth generation teacher. So my mother is a retired New York City teacher. My grandmother was a teacher on the island of Jamaica for 20 years and then in New York for 20 years. My great grandmother was a teacher in Jamaica up until she got married she was the daughter of an Irish woman and a black man she stopped working after she got married because it wasn't considered respectable for a married woman to continue working in the late 1800s and ironically my mother began teaching long after she got married in the late 1900s so without further ado I'm excited to speak with my guest today.
1: Hi, Sonia. Thank you for having me on the show. I am Sabine Gideon. I currently reside in San Diego, California. However, uh, most of my childhood and adult years were spent in Connecticut. Um, And even prior to that, I was actually born in Haiti and migrated here uh, when I was just shy of four. So I've spent most of my life on the East Coast. And for the last five, four or so years, I've been on the West Coast.
0: I love that. And do you identify as black or how do you
1: identify? It's funny, uh, we had that, we had this conversation in some capacity. Honestly, I I don't, <laughs> I guess is the short way to put it. Um, as I, As I was sharing, you know, being born in Haiti and growing up in Haitian culture, I've always, identified or been very aware that I was Haitian and especially coming into, uh, I don't know, like my formative years in having, seeing the differences or experiencing the differences between, you know, African-American, uh, students, kids or whatever, and how we lived our life. It was very, very clear and very apparent, apparent that there was a difference. So for the majority of my life, I've just been like, I'm Haitian. I'm Haitian. Mm -hmm. And you know, the mindset that I had was that in, in America, right? Like everybody gets lumped into skin color. And there was a part of me that always wanted to be like, no, 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 I'm Haitian. I'm I'm not African-American. Not that I saw it as anything bad. It was just, this is the part of my identity. So long way of answering your question. I I identify as Haitian, um, however, I understand based on, you know, social norms, vernacular, whatever, I my options usually on the box are African American/ slash black. So that's what I identify with on paperwork.
0: I appreciate you sharing that. And you said you grew up in Haiti?
1: Yeah, well, up until I was four, so <laughs> not a lot of memories uh, about that experience.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, and I shared with you, I'm part Jamaican and then African-American and Indigenous American. So it's like, we're all a part of the diaspora. Um, Yeah. Thank you. And so now I'd love to hear about what is your what was your experience living or working or if you're going to school during the pandemic? If you could start like in early 2020 and then tell us a a narrative about once if you had to work from home and what that transition was like.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that question. So uh, I will start just before 2020 started in 2019. I had a client uh, that was in Los Angeles that I was commuting for, decided uh, when they asked me to take on a longer term project, I moved to LA in December of 2019, right? So not knowing, obviously, like none of us did, what was going to take place in March. And so You know, for the most part, I was going into the office on a regular basis during that time. And then literally the week before the shutdown, we had made the decision to, you know, stop going into the office. And then it became an entire shutdown. At first, it was great. (laughs) At first, like, I'm sure most people felt like it was great. I mean, there was a lot of unknown. There was a lot of, you know, anxiety in the atmosphere, and certainly a lot of ambiguity of how long this would last. But, you know, being able to crawl out of bed, and just like, you know, get ready and not have to like, get ready, ready um but then what I noticed at least for me a couple of things that I noticed and I was working at an organization as uh as you know a senior level role uh in an environment that was mostly uh Caucasian for the most part actually yeah it was mostly Caucasian um and it was interesting because my previous experiences in, in working in organizations had been in like large corporate, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 50 organizations, right? And so it's very easy to get lost in a team or to get lost in the organization. Here, it was a very, very small amount of people. And so you got to know everybody, like you felt everybody's feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, as the pandemic went on, right? So we, we started with March. Then we hit social, uh, well, we hit the murder uh, of George Floyd, right? That's when I think,
0: yeah, you have a question? No, no, I'm glad you're bringing this up.
1: Yeah, um, that's when the weight of the pandemic and the weight of everything really started to um, impact me. Up until that point, it was just like, okay, you know what? I have been through some stuff before, <laughs> like I can handle it. We, you know, that, that Superman or Superwoman syndrome that we often have and, and don't even recognize it. Like, and especially when you're, you know, you, you've experienced trauma, like your body and your mind knows how to react to that. So I think the first few months for me, it was more of a trauma response of it's go time. Right. And so I was in it things weren't effective, affecting me, you know, as much, then George Floyd murder, murder happens, right? And so it's another, it's another opportunity to take a pause and to reassess, like, who am I, right? Like, what am I doing? Like, where am I that I could live in a place where someone could maliciously treat another human being like that. Right. So, you know, we go from grappling with our own mortality, right. With this unknown virus to, you know, grappling with our own mortality just because of the color of our skin. And for me, it, even with the George Floyd incident, there was still a part of me that felt separated from it. Right. Like I didn't feel I felt the outrage because another human life was taken unnecessarily, but I didn't feel outrage because a white man took a black man's life unnecessarily. And so believe it or not, the thing that really, (laughs) I don't know, the thing that really like pulled the band aid for me was the Amy Cooper situation. And for those of you who, who may not know or don't remember, Amy Cooper was the white woman who was in the park. Uh, this black gentleman who, you know, has certifications and degrees and whatever from, you know, everywhere, like a smart, intelligent, everything man. He simply asked her to put her dog on the leash. And in a moment of irrational fear, she weaponized his skin color and it didn't matter That he was a professor at an Ivy League school. It didn't matter that he was a model citizen. None of that mattered. The color of his skin was enough to be used as a weapon. And that was the very first time that I, like, my eyes were open and I realized wow, it doesn't matter how articulate I am. It doesn't matter how many degrees I have. It doesn't matter how many corporate ladders I've climbed. When people see me, when certain people see me, I should say, they see my skin color. And it was, it, it was a, <laughs> a humbling moment, to say the least. And it, it was truly an awakening for me of this is where, this is my environment right now. And then, you know, of course, everyone has to process it differently. I wasn't angry. I was hurt more than anything. And it goes back to humanity treating humanity any less than humanity for any reason and that's the part that that's the part that that hurt me the most and that made me realize okay i don't want to live in a world where my skin color is could be used as a weapon against me i want to live in a world where i emote love i emote joy i emote Um, unity. And I truly believe that what we put out there is what we receive. Now, does that mean that I won't encounter, you know, ignorant people? No, not at all. But I don't have control over how they respond to me. What I do have control over is how I show up and how I show people the humanity in me and connect with them at the human level so i'll take a pause there because i feel like i'm i'll probably go into another tangent here so um yeah
0: no i'm so glad you brought that out because at the time while the pandemic was going there was also the black lives matter movement there were protests against prote- police brutality yeah. I, I was curious were there protests in your neighborhood or in your city at that time
1: Oh, yeah, I was living in LA. There was, <laughs> there was protests to the point where we were on lockdown, uh, literally, like, uh, I think 7, 7pm, 7, 7 or 8pm, like you had to be in and like the helicopters were flying around. And we were on lockdown for a significantly longer time than like most of the other surrounding um, counties uh, here in California, and certainly around the country. And I think, again, it was probably more of an overreactive protective measure given, you know, it's the LA, it's a big city. Um, but at the same time, LA saw the riots from mm-hmm. the Rodney King uh, experience back in the 90s. And so it was probably their way of saying, we don't want history to repeat itself. Wow.
0: I'm glad you brought that up. I, and I was also curious, I know a lot of people, a lot of organizations and companies are introducing positions for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I was wondering if you had any experience with that, like seeing those, your friends get these jobs or. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know. So I I have, I have experience with it and I have my thoughts. So in the capacity that I was operating in, you know, not only was I, you know, helping them build out people and culture, but I became the DEI person. And of course I was the only um, person of color uh, at the time. I shouldn't say person of color. I was the only black person um, and in that capacity. And so there was a part of me because I had seen DEI programs rolled out in the larger organizations that I've worked in before, a part of me was just like, oh my gosh, this is the most performative (laughs) uh, thing. And I felt like there was a part of me that felt like a hypocrite, right? Because knowing that the work around DEI, and don't get me wrong, I was incorporating DEI in every phase of the employee life cycle, but I was also in the in the stage of building out the function. So there was, I could, there was no DEI strategy specific that I could speak to. And then when this happened, it was like, oh, we need a strategy in place. Right. So like I felt like, okay, well, we got to put something together. Um, and then at the same time, I I also felt like. There's this part of me that feels that every time we create something, DEI aside, and also DEI included, every time we create focus on something, we're also creating focus on something else. So I understand that the point, the purpose of DEI is to, you know, create more inclusive organizations, more inclusive environments where people feel safe. They could bring their whole selves to work, right? But if that's the message and and the, the, what's the word? The essence of that is, is absolutely what all organizations shall see, should be seeking, right? But then when you clothed it oh, under, so that people of color can feel psychologically safe, so that people of color can bring their, their whole selves to work. In essence, you're dividing, right? You're creating division. While I understand the, the, the purpose of DEI strategy and DEI efforts is to unite, it almost, the narrative, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but the narrative almost always suggests there is a division. There is a difference. And so how do you really unite when you're constantly reminding people that there are differences? How Mm -hmm. do you unite? How do you, how do we ever really, um, where John can be seen as John and not, you know, John who is Southeast Asian or, you know, Melissa, who is from Jamaica or anything like that, right? Um, the more we point out that, oh, John is Southeast Asian, Melissa's from Jamaica, it stops being about Melissa, it Ooh. stops being about John. And so, with DEI initiatives, I, I just had someone on my podcast uh, not too long ago, and they were talking about, you know, this the strategy around operationalizing DEI, right? So, it, it, in essence, it's it's almost taking the human aspect out of it, right? Uh, which sounds counterintuitive, but I I like that thought of it, where and no one takes it personally. It's not a it's not an attack on anyone's identity. It's not an attack on things that we're we don't have control over, like the color of our skin, but looking at, you know, how do we make sure that our recruiting process, the ATS, the applicant tracking system that we use is able to, you know, is not doing the opposite, right? It's not ruling people out. How do we create spaces where, you know, instead of having a name come through that may quote unquote, you know, and I'm using air quotes here, Uh, look foreign or sound foreign or sound hard to pronounce, right? What if we took names off of resumes so that when they came through, all we see is the experience and we're making a decision based on the person's experience versus, you know, our biases coming through in names and things that we don't pay attention to. So in the, in, in, as we're, relates to DEI, I'm I'm for it if we can continue to do that throughout the process so mm-hmm. that it no longer be- becomes or it does not it doesn't remain a conversation of our differences and why we should respect differences, but it should be we're all the same, period. We're just looking for this skill set and we can remove the bias out of the the process.
0: I like that suggestion. I never heard that suggestion of removing the names from resumes. That, that sounds like the equalizer, not like instead of intentionally looking for a certain, certain gender, a certain ethnicity. or um, That's so interesting.
1: Oh, so if, even if you look at it from the perspective of like job descriptions now, most, a, most applicant tracking systems will ask, how do you identify What is your gender? Right. And over time, they've been adding more and more stuff to it. But and it's it's self-identification, but it's still asking the question. And most people are going to answer it like you have the choice not to, but because it's there people are going to answer it. Now, I understand why organizations did that. I mean, being on NHR, I get that. That's their way of being able to look at, you know, what is our workforce? What are the demographics, right? Like, so that they can make decisions. But a byproduct of them doing that was creating additional bias in the yeah. process. So it's like, how do we rewrite that? How do we still get the information that we need without creating that upfront or creating opportunities for that upfront bias uh, and you know uh, lack of opportunity to present itself.
0: Wow, wow, that's so interesting. You gave me a lot to think about. I was, and I was also curious because I noticed that you started your podcast in twenty twenty. So was that just before the pandemic happened? Yeah. <laughs>
1: So I started a funny story. I started the uh, journey to becoming podcast, uh, which was um, supposed to be an extension of my book, uh, the journey to becoming, and also an opportunity for me to, you know, promote it and to hear the stories of other women. You know, so often we see people when they're at their mountaintops, right? We have no idea the valleys, the scrapes, the, you know, the the days of things not looking great or Instagram ready. Um, And I wanted to tell those stories because, you know, that's very much like my story, right? The person that you see today is nowhere near or nowhere near resembles the person, you know, 5, 10, 15, or even 20, or we can keep going, but we'll stop at 20 20 years ago, right? And so I wanted to tell that story and create a platform for other people to tell this story. So I launched that podcast, I want to say it was January 6th. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously, you know, the pandemic happened. and it became really a, a saving grace for me during that time frame because oh. it was a creative outlet. Um, it was a way for me to do, like not have to worry about, you know, what was happening in the world. Um, <laughs> I guess that was my moment of privilege. Uh, and I could just focus on, creating something that, you know, could uplift, could empower, could help other people who might have been in the valley moment to mm-hmm. see, okay, you know what? I'm here now, but at some point I'm going to reach the mountaintop because if she could do it, then I could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what journey to becoming. And then, then I, I, I put it to rest. It's on hiatus right now. And then I launched, uh, she leads now. January 6th of 2021. Was it 2021? No, 2022. One of the, I I can't remember. It had to be, wait, when was the insurrection? Was the insurrection?
0: That was 2021. Okay.
1: So when I launched, when I launched, hmm. Wait, I'm off on dates here. So I think when I launched um Journey to Becoming, I was so excited. It's like, oh my gosh, I hit the button. the The podcast is launched. The world is gonna listen to it. Had no idea because first of all, we're on the West Coast, and so and I don't, I wasn't watching the news at the time, and so I had no idea that you know <laughs> the insurrection was happening on the day of my launch. So it was just like, it was another thing where like, as a, as a woman of color, right. Again, it's like, okay, I'm excited. I'm I'm putting positivity out in the world and I'm creating this thing. And then on the other side of the country, right. Was complete chaos. And Again, the narrative that came from that situation around, like, oh, if Black people would have done that, like, it would have been gunshots and da 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 da. And while that, while that may be true, I just I, there's a part of me that just hates that. That's where the narrative went. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I can never really articulate it or explain it. But then it was almost like it was another scab that had just been picked on the country and created a whole nother round of trauma in a time where yeah, I feel like people were just getting to that place. So that that's the tie-in to this conversation and the in the podcast, because I literally launched Journey to Becoming on January 6th. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh! Like when you said that, when it was an insurrection, I had to think about the years because they all kind of blended together. And now it's twenty twenty three, and I don't feel like three, 2020 is three years ago.
1: Yeah, like, I definitely.
0: feel like right. Like I feel like twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one were one year. <laughs> like <laughs>
1: wow, that's why I had to take the pause. I was like, wait, no, we're in twenty twenty three. Um, yeah, it's it's one of the things that, and we talked about this a little earlier too, you know, our, our bodies, our minds, it's been created to sustain, you know, periods of trauma, short Mm -hmm. periods of trauma, but we have literally been in three years or we've been experiencing trauma for the last three years and it looks different for everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, between the pandemic and the social unrest and, you know, uh, everything else. And then Ukraine. And like, it was just like, right. Like I can literally every few months, there has been something that has been like this major thing that either is pushing up or pushing us towards uniting with each other, right. Under the, under the, the valor of, of love and unity, and let's come together and bring peace. Or it's this thing that is dividing us, and you know, reminding us that you know humanity has a real dark side.
0: That's such a good point because I was thinking, like, when the pandemic first started, people used to clap for the healthcare workers around on the east Yeah, right. And so, like, as they're coming home, and then in my neighborhood, the um. The fire trucks would kind of drive around with the sirens, and people would like bang on their pots and pans. Yeah, and then once the the protest started because of the the murder of George Floyd, like that kind of ended. So it went from like this this joyous coming together, and then the up the social uprising. Um, Yeah, America, I mean, all over the world, we've all been through a lot, but particularly Black people. Like, I I went to a lot of um, funerals online with my mom. Even last year, I went to several funerals. Like, it was just, it's heartbreaking. People are still passing away from COVID or COVID-related deaths if they weren't able to get medical attention. Um, I don't know if you want to share about anyone who may have passed either from COVID or COVID related.
1: So I don't. I mean, I know people through people who who have passed, but uh, you know, by the grace of God, I I had didn't have like any personal family members who uh, who it passed as a result of it. Um, so I don't have anything to speak to in terms of uh, the COVID nineteen. But you know, I think about even the images and the recordings of what they talked about, like, especially in cities like New York, right. And even other areas uh, where the people who were hit the most or, you know, most impacted were, you know, black and brown people. Mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, and not only that, not, e- not even just COVID, but you know, that it's almost like that uh, pulled the blanket so that we could see the disparities that have always existed in the, you know, medical industry and medical system, if you will. And that's one of those, for me, at least personally, that's one of the areas that I had never even considered, it was not even in my awareness that there would be disparities. But then you hear, you know, I had heard stories of like, Black women, right? Like the the mortality rate for for Black women being higher than others, right? You hear that stuff and you're like, oh, that's an interesting statistic. And then something like COVID-19 happens And you're seeing like why not necessarily the correlation why there, but you're you're getting a little bit more facts and details around the differences, and now you can see the correlation, and it it no longer becomes a oh that's a that's an interesting statistic. It becomes like oh no this is a real problem, (laughs) like this is you can't ignore it anymore Mm -hmm. at this point. And how did we how did we let it go so long? Yeah, it, it's, it's been interesting. I, you know, you're a storyteller, right? And you know, you can tell any story you want. You can create any narrative that you want. And so I think the other thing that this whole pandemic, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, especially in the beginning, it it caused people to take a pause and to evaluate, what are my priorities? What's important to me? who's important to me, what do I want to do with my life? What is the purpose of my life? You know, that level of introspection that we were all invited to, you know, engage in, I pray that that hasn't stopped because even in that moment, right, if if, for those who did the work, right, for those who did the work, I don't see how we could ever go back and not that we need to disbelief, believe, or distrust anything that is shared, but I would I would hope that we have enough um, evidence now that we should be questioning everything, right? We should absolutely be questioning everything and not take things as face value. I think we, we put a lot of trust as a society and probably even, I would even say like as, as minorities, we put a lot of trust in the media. We put a lot of trust in government we put a lot of trust in these systems right almost to a place to a point where we have become disempowered Ooh. and so the the invitation would be you know if if you're on at that state where you're kind of like noticing these things and you're not starting to question or you're not starting to take action to take your power back then that is, <laughs> that is not a good thing. I, I don't even know the, the nice way to say that, like that is, that is a problem. Because at this point, I think every system that has been created in our society, at least here in the US, it's been exposed and we've seen the gaps, we've seen the holes, right? We as a society, black, white, Hispanic, whatever, we can go back to ignorance like where we were in 2019 of we just didn't know or, you know, we, we quote unquote had the privilege to ignore or we can start to look at these things and say, wait a minute, we've been operating under some pretty foul systems, right? For everyone who has a platform, for everyone who has, um, you know, a sphere of influence, we should be coming together to make change versus coming together to complain or coming together to be against each other, right? This is a great opportunity that, you know, while it's been a sucky <laughs> last few years, it's also been a great opportunity for people to stand up and say individually, you know what, I don't have necessary. I'm not a lobbyist, right? And I don't have the, the money to stand up and, you know, pay politicians, right, to do whatever I need them to do. But guess what? there is an open city council seat. I'm going to get involved, mm-hmm. right? Or what An Alderman or whatever, right? It, and it doesn't have. I'm just using government as one example, right? The same could be true in, in you're seeing black women. Uh, I think the, the number of, of women who have small businesses at the end of 2021 was about 42%. Oh. Uh, the number of black women in that 42% is about 60 something. Right. And so over the last few years, more and more black women have left corporate or have transitioned out of traditional work environments to start their businesses because it's you. They recognize, you know what? I need to create my own economy or this system that I'm in is always going to have power over me. So we're seeing the movements. I, I just I, I, I'm saying this because I hope that people are really recognizing that you have agency over the life that you create. And while you may not change what Biden is thinking, right, you can change what's happening in your immediate area of influence and how you live your life and how you set life up for the next generation.
0: How That is so inspiring. Like I needed to hear that, right? Because when the pandemic occurred and people were told to work from home, but then it's like, well, who gets to work from home? If you're a delivery worker, you're not working. home if you if you have a daycare you you can't just suddenly bring all the kids to your home so I like that it's like now we have an opportunity to create businesses or create our own economies um that's that's really inspiring hearing I didn't realize that so many women were creating their own businesses
1: yeah and I I think that the it's funny because you know you again I I'm always I'll, I'll listen to the statistic. I'll pay attention to the statistic. I may even repeat the, the the statistic, but I also know that there's a, there's a specific narrative behind it. Right. Um, if you look around when I was in corporate, I had my quote unquote side hustle, like women have had their side hustles for decades. I think it's because the, the, of everything that has happened and everything feels very exposed Things are now being tracked in a way that they probably hadn't been tracked before. So Mm. even it's not like, you know, all of a sudden these women quit their jobs and started businesses. They probably already had businesses on the side and now they've left. And now, you know, it's being recorded. I I don't think that it's anything new. Um, I think the numbers definitely have increased, but women have been doing this for so long, um, men, men too, have been si- starting their side hustles and you're seeing even more uh, people of color do it because they're realizing, you know what, I, 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 to give you an example of this, I am part of this, uh, this organization or this community of uh, Black HR leaders, right? So these are executive leaders at like your biggest organizations to medium size, Right. And so during the pandemic, because of the level of stress and the level of weight and burden and not having a place where they could be them and share their wounds, this thing was created. And at the same time, while this support system was created to help uplift, as stories were shared, people were starting to see, I'm in HR. I am part of the leadership that is making this decision. And I don't feel supported in this environment, in this system that I am part of. And so even even the people who quote unquote were decision makers, right? Or had a seat at the table, so to speak, were looking around and they were seeing, I'm not really valued here. Mm. I'm not, this this is not it. And, and, and for me, I know personally, it was more of the I'm conflicted because I'm supposed to be the the face and the representative of, of blackness <laughs> here at this organization. But I'm also the 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 object of some of the very same things that I'm trying to block <laughs> other people from having to experience. That's not a great place to be in. That's not a great place to be in.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up because a lot of the people who I interviewed, they said that working from home brought them so much peace because they weren't subject to microaggressions at work. Like, they're just like, I don't know, I'm going to go back to the office.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's funny because, I mean, before microaggressions became a buzzword, right in 2020, like we had all experienced them. But it wasn't until more and more people started sharing stories, like you could you could uh, isolate the incident, right? Well, that's just how X is or that's just how she was or she w- you know, she was a manager that like made my life miserable. But then once people started giving language to it and giving examples, And I started to be like, oh my gosh, (laughs) all those bosses, like I could never pinpoint, I could never... Um, you know, put language to what I was feeling or why I was feeling it. I was so quick to just be like, you know what to mean? It's you push through, you know, the messages that we get, right? Like you're, this is your boss. This is the person of authority and not even recognizing that like, no, that person was low key, maybe not even low key, but abusive. Yeah. And the question then becomes when you look at it afterward, like how, (laughs) how were they able to convince me to remain in an abusive environment for so long. Yes. When you look at the foundations of America and the people that we look at now and we're like, oh, they were pioneers and all this other stuff, none of them worked for anyone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> none of them worked for anyone. And I, I truly believe, you know, based on what I've read, based on wh- what I've studied, you know, the the foundation of capitalism was for people to create their own economies. But the workforce, right, when they couldn't get free, (laughs) they started and it wasn't just going to be an isolated group. Like it's this conditioning that we've had all of these years. And so not not to get into it philosophically, but if everyone is operating in a certain place, we're communal beings. We, you know, we come into this world and we learn based on our environment and based on what we've seen From, from birth, we are being conditioned that this is the thing. So I think the past cycle of slavery has something to do with it. But over time, I would venture to say that many of us, more of us choose to stay in that cycle, in that pattern, than the ones who choose to step outside of it, if that makes sense.
0: It does. Yeah, because then that speaks to how you said more women are starting their own businesses uh, or have started their businesses during the pandemic, which is inspiring. And I like that you look at it from a point of view of empowerment and how we are, right, we can make our own choices. Yeah. I like that. Wow. You're so inspiring. Now I see why you're you're an empowerment coach or?
1: Uh, I don't know that I would classify as that. I think that's just that's just not like my natural being. Um, who wants to live life disempowered? Yeah. If we only get one shot at this, right. We, we, and we get to choose, do I sludge through 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years being miserable, or can I choose to live as fulfilling of a life and whatever that, whatever that looks like for you, right? Um, So I'm on the side of choosing fulfillment because guess what? Life is going to throw (laughs) its lemons at me. Life is going to throw its negativity at me. Life is going to already do that. I don't necessarily have to be a player in that game. I can choose to say, all right, you threw this at me. I'm still moving this way.
0: I love that. Which speaks to your book, Transformed, The Journey to Becoming. And, yeah, and then yeah. your podcast, she leads now. Yes, we need more women leaders. you you inspire me. Like I I feel I feel empowered talking to you. Like, yes, I can keep doing this.
1: <laughs> you absolutely can. And I will say that I, I, I've said this to you when we talked the first time. Like, this is such an amazing vision to have and an amazing creation to be bringing to light. Like I shared with you before, like no one's sitting around thinking about like, oh, how can I, you know, create this platform to allow more uh, Black individuals to be able to share their stories, to be able to share their experience in what is now in our generation's most traumatic period, right? You know, we have previous generations who experienced Vietnam or they experienced the bombing of Hiroshima. Like, you know, like other generations have these things that really, really shaped and molded who they were as a generation. And now we have this uh, as, as what five generations that are currently alive right now as our common bond. And so to be able to capture that and capture these stories that, you know, the Z's and whatever else comes after that, that they can listen to this and they can hear and be like, oh, that's what was happening then. Um, I, I so commend you for taking the charge and taking the lead in, in leading this.
0: Thank you, because I really want people in the future to hear in our own voices what life was like and not look at statistics and think, oh, black people were all unhealthy and they were all dying. You know, like that's not from even interviewing you. That's not even your experience. You don't even personally know someone who died from COVID. So I love that you're disproving this narrative that's being created by who knows who. All right, so thank you. Thank you for participating.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for for giving me an opportunity to do so.
0: Thank you for listening to my conversation on this episode of Black America and COVID, an oral history project. If you enjoy the episode, then please give it five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. The more five stars the podcast has, the more visible it is, the more access I have to people who would like to share their story, living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you are a Black American and you would like to share your experience with me, then email me at sonykillerbrew at gmail.com, the emails is in the show notes of the podcast, or direct message me through my Instagram account, blackamericaandcovid, all one word, all lowercase. If you are a non-Black American and you would like to memorialize the life of a Black American sadly lost during the COVID-19 pandemic, then email me as well. This episode was written, produced, and audio engineered by me, Sonia Jean Kilbrew, podcast host and executive producer. Thanks for listening to my oral history project, Black America and COVID.